Welcome to the DTB podcast for May 2023, volume 61, number five. My name is David Fazakri and I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Thank you for joining us for this podcast in which we will talk about the content of May's DTB. Uh, two things to talk about before we get into the detail. First, let's clear up the mystery of the breed of barking dog captured in last month's podcast. I know it wasn't a beagle because she was curled up beside me. So what was it? That was Winnie, I'm afraid. Winnie is a Yorkshire cross with all bark and nothing much else. Okay, so if you heard it and uh, identified the dog correctly, uh, give yourself a bonus point. And if you got the name, well, give yourself two bonus points. <laughs> right, <laughs> secondly, important stuff. Um, just wondered what you made of the announcement in the government's recent budget statement that the MHRA is introducing a new approval process for medicines that have been licensed elsewhere. Um, the press release said this will allow from 2024 the MHRA to introduce new swift approval systems, speeding up access to treatments already approved by trusted international partners. Uh, should we be worried or should we welcome this? You could say, why duplicate work? You know, if the EMA, the European Medicines Agency or the FDA in the USA approve a drug, you know, they're both big organisations. Why not simply rubber stamp that? Um, but my concern is that it, this is all about this strategic biomedical sciences approach, the sort of Brexit bonus, if you like, that the government wants to develop for pharmaceutical companies. And the idea is it makes the UK the quickest, simplest regulatory place. So one hopes or the government hopes that pharmaceutical companies will come here to get their drugs approved. Um, my concern is that this could be a race to the bottom in the sense that uh, if it's successful, it may well be that other your uh, medicines agencies decide to do the same thing and we get less and less careful scrutiny of uh, drugs as they come to market. Because I think the one thing, and Andrew Herxheimer was very hot on this, the one thing that you don't get when a drug is licensed and approved is its long-term safety. Because by definition, it hasn't been around very long. And of course, the, sh the, more, the faster, the quicker, and the shorter you make the regulatory process, the shorter that time scale is that you have to look for that long-term safety. So I, I have huge concerns about it. I mean, to give you an example of perhaps where this might lead, I, I read an interesting article between 2018 and 2021, the FDA approved about 210 new drugs, but 21 of those were based on pivotal studies where there was null finding for one or more of the primary efficacy endpoints. In other words, the studies that they used to approve the drug didn't demonstrate that they worked. So that's almost 10% of what well, is 10% of the, the drugs. So, you know, the risk is that we simply end up approving a lot of drugs which aren't any good. And in addition, we perhaps approve drugs that may be actually unsafe as well. So, um, I can see why, of course, the problem we've now got is the UK is a much smaller market than Europe. It's a much smaller market than the USA. So obviously there are concerns that we might be bypassed. Um, and it's important that the UK has access to effective drugs. I mean, you know, no one's denying that. But I just think we've got to be so careful at making sure this isn't a race to the bottom. 
I mean, it's interesting that BMJ had a piece on this, I think, last week or the week before, and they, they highlighted some of the risks. And they, and they rightly pointed out that the FDA got itself in a right mess with its decision-making over aducanumab. Um, various members of the, of the committee resigned on the basis of their recommendation when they were overruled. And so there's issues that if you do just blindly follow what another regulator has done, you may miss all, all the nuances of... of how that decision was made. But also, we've got an example here, haven't we? Molnupiravir, um, approved by MHRA on very early data, but now it seems that that data is not supported or doesn't support that it's particularly effective. And I think even the EMA have voted not to license it. That's right. Yeah, the panoramic study that was done has not shown it's effective at reducing hospitalizations or deaths in patients who've been immunized, which is, of course, the majority of patients in the UK. And as you say, the EMA are not even going to bother licensing it. So you're absolutely right. I think I read somewhere that we've spent over five million pounds on that drug. Um, and of course, it's going to sit in a warehouse doing nothing. Now, obviously, a good thing if we can speed up the process for developing safe and effective medicines. But, you know, as you point out, the, the safety aspect only comes with time and we need to make sure that we're not sacrificing kind of certainty for speed just to get things through that bit quicker because it makes us a more attractive market. And maybe that leads us on to our editorial. Um, so we've got... Uh, another celebration that we're, we're focusing on this month, and it perhaps picks up some of the issues about uh, evidence and, and safety. Uh, do you want to talk a bit about this one? Well, I think, first of all, the big celebration, of course, is your big birthday. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> that was this month. And oddly enough, you're about the same age as the DTB, which is fascinating coincidence. But we move swiftly on. I won't say which one's looking more like his age than the other, but uh, it's, it's not the journal. Yeah, but moving swiftly on. Yes. So um, people think, hang on a minute, I'll be saying, but hang on, you celebrated your 60th birthday for DTB last year. So why are you doing it again? And that's because DTB started last year as really just a reprint of the medical letter with a few tweaks done by Andrew Herxheimer, often just putting the UK name of the drug in, in the margin. And then uh, in May 1963, he actually produced the DTB as we love it now as an independent title um, with articles commissioned in the UK for the UK. So that's that's why we're now sort of giving it another bit of a celebration now. And I think what was interesting, um, the BMJ Publishing do a very good editorial retreat for editors of all their journals. And you'll be surprised to know there's, I think, about 60 journals now that BMJ Publishing are involved in. And we were given... Uh, a sort of challenge, really, um, by a very influential uh, speaker at that day to really say, what does our journal stand for? And that got us thinking. And I know um, the editor of the BMJ Mental Health wrote an editorial about what he feels that his journal should stand for. And I think we need to do the same for the DTB. So that's what editorial is all about. And I think there'll be no surprises amongst our listeners about what we feel we stand for. And the top three things? I think the most important thing for us is to recognise that we need to be completely independent. I think that's incredibly important uh, given the changes in what's going on at NICE and the MHRA. So independent, 
critical. I think it's really important that someone holds a mirror up to uh, the whole uh, therapeutic developments that are going on in the world at the moment. But at the same time, um, constructive patient and clinician focused. I think there's a lot of talk about being patient focused at the moment. I think the pharmaceutical industry has got a lot of focus on it as well. And I think the one of the groups that is not getting as much support as they need are actually the prescribers. Um, so I think we hold a flag for them. You know, we recognize how difficult and complex prescribing and therapeutics are, and they need all the support they can get. So I think that's one of the things that I'm very keen that we should uh, continue to do. Okay, well, thank you for that. Um, maybe in a year's time, we'll find another reason to celebrate 60 years, but let's, <laughs> let's enjoy this, this second an anniversary. Okay, let's move on to a DTB Select article. Uh, we've got one this month that looked at a study that assessed uh, concomitant use of an anticoagulant and a non-steroidal. So I suppose two questions, what did they find and were there any surprises in their findings? So this is one of these studies that's right up my alley. I just love these big cohort studies organized by clinical practice research data link and hospital data. And it just shows the strength of primary care data, GP data and hospital data, the NHS, and really putting it together and giving an incredibly um, full sort of look at what's going on at a particular area. And this was a study uh, published in the British Journal of Clinical Pharmacology that looked at a cohort of people between 2007 and 2017. And it basically looked at patients who were taking OACs. So that's not just DOAX, but also warfarin. So basically on anticoagulation and looked at what happened to those patients who were then prescribed a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. And the outcomes they were looking for, as you might expect, were not just GI bleeding because you're offering someone an anticoagulation and a drug that upsets your gut, but also looking at the risk of stroke because there are concerns that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs might interfere with um, the action of the anticoagulant as well. So really interesting, nice big study, um, uh, big cohort study over 10 years. And what they found in short was that if you're being anticoagulated and you are given at least one prescription for an anti-inflammatory drug, you triple your risk of a GI bleed and about the same, you almost triple your risk of a stroke. Now, quite small numbers still. So looking at stroke, in the patients that were taking anticoagulation without an anti-inflammatory, we're talking about probably eight patients per thousand patient years, if that makes sense. If you gave them at least one anti-inflammatory drug, you change that from eight to almost, well, 21. So almost three times the risk. Now, of course, what's more interesting as well is the great thing about this, this cohort study is you can look and see what was going on under the under the bonnet, if you like, and look at the number of patients who were on antidepressants or on PPI protection, who were taking aspirin as well. And there's some interesting sort of historical features, if you like, looking at it, because this is back in 2007. So, um, you know, 4% of these patients didn't have controlled blood pressure. 18% were on antidepressants. 10% were on steroids, which I find interesting, unless they included high-dose inhaled steroids. I couldn't quite work out where or why all the patients were on anticoagulation because 52% had atrial fibrillation, 27% had 
venous thromboembolic disease and 8% had um, valvular disease, but that number for me doesn't add up to 100%. Um, so that's quite interesting. I wondered what was going on there. Um, but yeah, it's a really interesting study. So, I, and I think this is particularly interesting. I know a lot of people out there are going to go, "Oh no, what, what? How are we meant to treat pain? <laughs> you know, we can't use opioids. We're told that paracetamol doesn't work in in osteoarthritis. You know, a bit of anti-inflammatory might have been the answer. But here we are demonstrating that actually it does have a risk. Now, there are some weaknesses in this study. They didn't look at over-the-counter anti-inflammatories. And the other thing I think is a real shame is they didn't look or compare patients on warfarin with those who were on the new DOACs, because that would have been really interesting to see if, if they're, you know, this is a lovely cohort study. We could have a really good look to see whether there were advantages or disadvantages of one over the other. So that was a shame, but a really interesting study. I've gone far too long about it, but yeah, I just love these sorts of cohorts. So they tell you so much about what's going on in medicine today. And as a practicing GP, who's going to see patients who are taking, um, some form of oral anticoagulant and who have got pain, what do you do? Well, I I mean, you do have to talk about the non-drug treatments for pain. And, and of course, pain is a very subjective thing. Um, and you've got to have that discussion about the sort of that really difficult discussion about it's not in your mind, but at the same time, where your mind is at the moment will determine to some extent, particularly with chronic pain, how bad that pain is. Um, but I think, yeah, there are places still to give people opioids for short term, and there is still a place for the anti-inflammatory drugs by no doubt, no doubt about it. But I think in the past where we used to use them a lot, and when I joined my GP practice 33 years ago, the number one drug that my patients were on, so the, the drug I was prescribing most of all, heaven forbid, was an anti-inflammatory drug. Um, the previous GP, I think, had felt that anyone with any sort of pain should go on it long term as a sort of preventative measure. So, you know, we have changed enormously, but I think like everything else, no such thing as a safe drug, only safe prescribers but there's time and place for a bit of anti-inflammatory sometimes. And certainly tied up with the discussion with the patient over the, you know, the risks and benefits. And I guess this is what this article helps with is, is putting some numbers around what those risks look like. Um, and interesting, as you say, the, the, the level of coverage of um, gastroprotective agents was, was it about a third. So yeah. one would expect yeah, 36%. to be much, much higher now. But even mm. so, you know, that, that, that won't prevent the, the increased stroke risk. So um, no. careful discussion um, and then a kind of joint decision making, I guess. And that's it. And I'm always absolutely amazed. I mean, when you offer patients numbers, the, the different sort of attitude you get from patients around, not only whether they want to see the numbers at all or not, but then if you do offer the numbers and they're interested in them, the difference in attitude, some patients 10% is an enormous risk and for others it's nothing. It's a fascinating area and which is gonna only develop more with time. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, let's go on to our, our main review article this month. Um, this is one of our, I guess, explanatory articles that, that looks at a relatively new class of medicines, which, I think we've got a few examples of. Um, where do we start with this one? Yes, this is really exciting. This is the whole concept of RNA interference. And we are doing a, it's a very good article on small interfering RNA molecules. Now, we'll all, I think, remember that 
the COVID vaccines, so particularly well, Moderna and Pfizer COVID vaccines, they used messenger RNA wrapped up in a lipophilic structure nanoparticle to get into the cell and trigger cells to produce protein. And in fact, obviously with the Moderna and Pfizer COVID vaccines, they were producing the spike protein of the COVID virus. And that then stimulated an antigenic response. And that was how those vaccinations all uh, worked. So, so you know, it's the same sort of science here, but what, what you're doing with small interfering RNA molecules is you are getting a RNA strand into the cell which actually interferes with intracellular messenger RNA and actually prevents protein synthesis. So this is a really clever way of silencing genes and preventing disease that's caused by by perhaps single gene protein synthesis. Um, so the first of these drugs I think was licensed in 2018 patisserin. Um, there are now about five or so that we discuss in the article. Um, and to give you an example of how they work, there's a condition called primary hyperoxaluria type 1, which is a genetic disorder, very rare. Prevalence is about one in three million. Um, but what happens in these patients is that they don't metabolize glyoxylate properly. And so it is um, because of a defective uh, enzyme. So as a consequence, they get high levels of oxalate forming, which then causes stones, uh, particularly in the renal system, and they get uh, renal failure. And what the drug does, this lumacirin, is it blocks higher up, if you like, the upstream from glycosylate, and therefore prevents glycosylate itself being produced by uh, preventing the production of a different enzyme. And uh, it's, you know, very effective in its in its action. So interesting. And of course, the one that everyone's heard about, perhaps, is in Clizaran, which is the only drug actually in the group that's so far been licensed, which actually isn't for a sort of single gene type um, condition. So it's the, it's the only one that sort of actually isn't really an orphan type drug. And I say we look into it's a very interesting uh, and as I say, I think we're going to see a good deal more. I gather there are another 12 of these drugs, if you can call them them, drugs in, in development. And there's talk about therapeutics for haemophilia, complement-mediated disease, and also more broad things like hypertension, NASH, and type 2 diabetes. So I think we're going to see a lot more of these small interfering RNA molecules. And this is a really good article that introduces readers to how they work, the issues around them, the safety elements, perhaps, uh, and just, a, I say, a very good um, summary. And what I found particularly interesting was that, that they seem to be, well, the, the development of them was targeting those conditions where there is you know, overproduction of a particular protein. Um, and as you say, a lot of them are, well, I think five of them out of the six, aren't they, are for rare conditions, and they're all, they've all been given orphan drug status, which is sort of a regulatory um, step that allows companies to claim some extra support in terms of developing them for such a small population. So those ones are, the, and then you have the opposite, which is in Clizaran, which is obviously a mass market approach um, and doing a slightly different job. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how they develop in the future. Because when I look down the list, a lot of them are for more orphan conditions, but there are one or two, aren't there? There's one, I think there's one for gout um, that's being developed, dry eye disease. What was your overall feel? Are you excited by this group? I, I think I am. I'm, I, obviously, the issue for me is how 
how sharp is this blade going to be? Is it going to be really good? Or, you know, the, the worry, I suppose, is if you just haven't clocked that perhaps there's a, another gene nearby, which actually is also affected, which you didn't realise. And this is why I think the um, uh, it's going to be really important, the sort of studies that are done. The other thing I think for prescribers, and I don't suppose many of us will be prescribing anything other than perhaps in Clizaran at any time soon with these, because they are, as you say, mostly for orphan conditions, which are going to be looked after by secondary care. But I suppose one of the issues I have is that clearly the lipid nanoparticle element is going to be vital. Um, now, it's very clever. They can make some of these um, wraps, if you like, that go round the small interfering RNA, actually um, almost a bit like ligands. So they can actually make them so they'll actually bind to the surface of particular cells. So that's going to be quite exciting as well, in the sense that you can not only target, obviously, the RNA inside a cell, but you can target the cell that that, that the messenger RNA is going to hit. But I think, you know, what's clear is that some of these drugs cause quite significant infusion reactions. So the actual act of having the or infusion um, can require actually pre-medication with steroids and antihistamines. So I think there's going to be an element of how much of uh, a reaction you get to them and their immunogenicity in the long run. Um, because I think what we're discovering, of course, like monoclonal antibodies as well is that we've got now a whole different class of therapeutics where we're not going to get the traditional perhaps side effects of nausea vomiting diarrhea which are always the things you were told to say in your fiver because every drug caused that this is going to be much more complex sort of type reactions i think so it's going to require us to be much more ready to think of you know immune related reactions as well as the sort of more classic ones if you like I mean, the positive news to date is apart from the infusion reactions or injection site reactions for the subcutaneous ones, which the most reported adverse effects so far, other adverse effects are relatively uncommon. Now, is that because, you know, when I was adding up the number of people who've been exposed to these drugs in clinical trials, apart from inclizaran, I think the other four or five, you're talking about a handful, 500, 600 people have been exposed to them. So, of course, you're not going to pick up uh, rare effects quickly um, and we've not had them in use for long enough to find rare effects so um, there is an element of caution because we don't know what the long-term uh, adverse effects are um, we may get a, a, a picture from Inclisram when it's the large-scale study that's underway at the moment reports back but at the moment you know the off-target or adverse reactions seem to be minimal would you say? I yeah, I agree, and I, as I say, and I think this is an exciting, exciting thing because, as you say, really, given that so much of cellular metabolism, so you know, it's all protein based, that if if you can start to work upstream, so rather than classic drugs that work perhaps in the extracellular environment and are already sort of um, fighting a losing wicket, if you like, in some respects, whereas these drugs work intracellularly, they prevent the production of the protein um, or they, they alter the metabolism of whatever process is going on. And so I think I think they are exciting and I think it will be interesting to see what diseases and what indications come out of the woodwork over the next few years with this. Obviously, you know, I always slightly worry when you see them being used for things like hypertension 
Um, you know, you wonder, okay, you can play around with the angiotensin, the gin process. Um, but we've got drugs that do that, 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 you know, are very cheap. Um, so I'm not sure that giving someone an infusion with a drug that costs thousands of pounds is really going to move things on, but we'll see. And it's just worth saying on that note that these are generally not cheap, um, cheap products. And, and certainly for the kind of the orphan drug status ones in the, in the group, they are very, very expensive and, and sort of squeak through NICE's um, cost effectiveness decision making on the basis that actually for rare conditions, they just about get there, but they are expensive. They are, but but I think transformational for some people, you know, primary hyperoxaluria type one, I think they're going to be, you know, transformational. It'll be really interesting to see. And um, yeah, so let's let's see. And it may well be that, you know, treatment of haemophilia will be radically altered as well if they manage to find a drug to impact on that. So exciting group of drugs for sure. Be interesting to see where they go. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, you can find these and all our articles on our website at dtp.bmj.com. Uh, all our previous podcasts are also available on the website. Just click the podcast button at the top of the page. If you want to get involved with DTP, please let us know. Uh, you can suggest topics, become a peer reviewer, write articles, or just leave us a comment. Uh, email us at dtp.bmj.com. Uh, many thanks for listening and we hope you'll be able to join us in a month's time for the June 2023 podcast.